Today's episode is brought to you by the best portfolio tracking tool available for Aussie investors, ShareSite. Put away the spreadsheet. ShareSite makes it ridiculously simple with automatic holding updates, comprehensive tax and performance reporting, wrapped up in an easy-to-use fully online system. My favorite thing about ShareSite is how easy it makes tax returns. Simply generate your tax report at the end of the financial year and voila, you're done. And here's the best part. It's 100% free for users that have under 10 holdings. If you have over 10 holdings and want to sign up, make sure you use my link to get the first two months for free. Head over to aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site to receive this special offer. Even if you're signing up using the free plan, using that link will score you two months for free if you ever decide to own more than 10 holdings. Finish tax time with a click of a button using ShareSite by signing up today. That's aussiefirebug.com forward slash share site for your free two months. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Ask Firebug Fridays, the monthly fire Q&A where you guys get to submit your questions and I try my best to answer them. So before we begin today's episode, I have a bone to pick. I'm well, av- I'm well aware of my struggles with the word ask and you guys definitely are aware of it as you continuously um, let me know about it in the comments and emails and whatnot. So I pronounce it A-K-S as in Arcs. Uh, Sarah asked a question and I tried my best to answer it. Well, I opened an email from a reader the other day who shed some historical light of my pronunciation of that word. In a stunning turn of events, it turns out that the pronunciation of the word ask, now considered the standard way to say it, descends from Northern England's version of the verb that in most Midland and Southern texts throughout the 1500s was actually spelt with an X, believe it or not, as in AX, AX, or CS, as in ACS, which is the way that I pronounce it, as in AX. So the reason uh, that it's now pronounced ASK, ask oh i'm getting so confused with this you know what i'm trying to say the reason that it's pronounced correctly now is because of a process called metathesis which is the transposition of sounds or syllables in a word of words or in a sentence now i don't claim to know exactly what that means uh but what but from what i could gather from the wikipedia page is it's basically when two very sounding uh sound very similar sounding sounds switch inside of the word so there's some really common ones um so comfortable is actually spelt comfortable nuclear is actually spelt nuclear and prescription is out is actually spelt prescription there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that the way you pronounce the word will be heavily influenced by where your ancestors were from when it was spoken as it was spoken differently in different places in england so that so wrapping that up um to, to summarize, the word is definitely pronounced ask. Ask? Did I get that right? Ask. Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> and um, so I've definitely been saying it wrong, but now I have a better understanding at least of, of why I say, and why I and so many others say it the way we do. And I'll put some links in um, this episode. If anyone else out there says the way I do, um, hopefully it, this these links and the Wikipedia page will explain it in greater detail than I can. So anyway, with that said, let's jump into today's episode. 
Nothing in this episode is financial advice. The following Q&A is for general information only and shouldn't be taken as constituting professional advice. You should always do your own research when making financial decisions. The first question today comes in from Tom. Tom writes in, G'day Aussie Firebug. I'm 29 and I have $70,000 saved and I don't own any property. I'm completely sold on the idea of parking my $70,000 into an LIC, reinvesting the dividends plus contributing an extra $5,000 a year at a minimum and not touching it for 30 years. But here's the plot twist. Through my work, I'm entitled to a one-off dollars to $25,000 after-tax payment that can only be used to purchase a first home, which I must live in for 12 months. This is not including the Queensland's first homeowner's grant of $15,000, which I'm also eligible for. I've never been interested in real estate, and I'm just about to pull the trigger on shares, but now... I'm considering the $20,000 extra that I can access, and it's really making me think twice about buying a cheap two-bedroom apartment, living in it, and renting out one room instead of investing in shares. So my question is, am I crazy not to take the extra $20,000 available and buy property instead? Thanks for the great blog, and thanks in advance. Regards, Tom. Hi, Tom. Thank you for writing in. That's a really good question. Uh, First up, what an amazing work perk. I don't know the the situation with your job and why they provide that, but that's awesome that that's even available to you. So kudos there. Uh, I've been out of the property game for a while now, and I wasn't actually aware that Queensland had the $15,000 first homeowner's grant. I'm not sure what I thought they had, but um, that's a, you know, it's a decent little grant you got there in Queensland. If you combine that with your entitlement for work, that's creeping up to be potentially $45,000 in grants and, and the grant from work. And this isn't a small amount of money and something that you need to put serious consideration into. Personally, I would never make such a big decision like buying a property just because of a grant. But if I'm being honest, if that grant is going to be $45,000, I could probably make that work. Everyone everyone has a number and I'm when I I did get the first homeowners grant uh, which I'll, I'll get into later on but uh, that was just over 20,000 which I thought was uh, too good too good of an opportunity to pass up but you shouldn't you probably shouldn't direct change your life in one direction or another or go into such a big thing like uh, property and buying a house just for a smaller grant, but then again, everyone has a, a different number where they would um, make that make that jump and like change direction. And for me personally, if I was if I was in your situation with the limited information that I have, forty five thousand. That I'm pretty sure I could make something work with forty five thousand. So here's my question to you though: Are you ever going to buy a home to live in? I understand firsthand the appeals of renting and investing the surplus of money into the stock market. Uh, We do that and we've done that for many years, but an opportunity like this seems too good to miss if if you ask me. And if you're considering buying a home in the future, and I feel like you could you could make this work if, if that's if that's something that you're considering. Unless there's something specifically, uh, unless there's something that you've got specifically against it that I don't know. Uh, if I were you, I would take advantage of the free money from your employer and the government. And here's another really important uh, piece <clears throat> or a bit of information to remember that 
even the government's first homeowner's grant can be axed and is never a guarantee. You might look at this situation and and be like, well, you know, the, the $15,000 is always going to be there. It's just this extra 20 to 25. That is potentially not true. The first homeowner's grant, uh, well, I experienced this or I've, I, uh, I still got it, but my story with the first homeowner's grant was, uh, I got it in 2012, but a few years beforehand, like maybe two, two, two or three years, one of my mates received something like 40,000. I think it was a little bit over 40, $40,000 from the Victorian first homeowner's grant to build a new home in country Victoria. I'm pretty sure this was at its absolute peak of its powers. You could not get a better first homeowner's grant, um, in history than when this guy got it or, or close to 40 bloody thousand bucks from the government and he was going to buy a home anyway. So it was literally just money for jam. The grant decreased a few years later and I ended up getting it, um, in 2012 for, I think I got just over $20,000. Um, funny story with that. I literally, literally signed the contract on the 29th of June, 2012 and it expired. You couldn't get the grant if you had signed a contract on the 1st of July, two days later. I already knew about this and the conveyance and you. So, um, I'd already planned on buying the house like a few months earlier, but we left, like we left it really, really late. Um, and it was a bit nerve wracking, but we got it done. But yeah, it was one of the last people, I guess, to, to get that. And I'm sure there was an influx of people going in there to get it as well. But anyway, that's just a story on that. Uh, and then after that, after 2012, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it disappeared for a while. Like there's a difference between getting the $20,000 and then not paying stamp duty or whatever, you know, concession that they come up with after that. I think that they, they made it cheaper for first home buyers to get into the market, but they, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they didn't give money or the first homeowner's grant disappeared for, a little while there and then it come back in like 2015 2016 um so the so my, the point i'm trying to make is opportunities like this might not come around again and this one is this one's a a, a really really good one like 45 40 40,000 45,000 tax free or after tax money that you can use to buy a house me personally i wouldn't i wouldn't let that pass me by. Um, but I don't know the whole picture, so it's very hard to say what I'll do in your situation. Uh, but that's just me. To be honest, I think both your options are very good, like renting and building the snowball and reinvesting, getting that compound going. That's a great option. I've been doing that for the last eight years. Love that option. Uh, and then if you go the other way as well, I would think that that's a pretty good option as well, unless you absolutely despise owning a house or there's something else I don't know about. Um, anyway, have a long, hard think about it. Both are pretty good options. And all I'll say is that you, you have to make the most of your opportunities and something like this might not ever come up again. Hope that answers your question and thanks for writing in. Our second question today comes in from Andy who writes in, Hi Aussie Firebug, I've been listening to JL Collins a bit and he talks about leaving a legacy for his kids. He believes his investments will, following the 4% rule, be greater when he dies, thus leaving it to his kids. His kids will then live on his investments following the 4% rule, who can in turn leave it to their kids and so on and so on. In the Australian context, using your strategy 3, one would have a large amount to pass on to their kids. 
Have you thought about how you would do this? Would some sort of trust be the most appropriate way to set up this continuing legacy? I have two girls and would like to protect their inve- protect the, the investments from any failed relationships, etc. they may have. Interested to hear your thoughts, Andy. Hi, Andy. This is such an interesting question. And I bet that you could ask 10 people chasing fire this question and get 10 completely different answers. I've thought a little about this, but I'll be honest, I haven't thought a lot about it uh, at this stage. And this is subject to change. I want to give my children as much as they need to fulfill their full potential and not a cent more, which I think is a pretty a common answer. And just for the record, I'm not a parent uh, yet. Uh, I, me, me and Mrs. Firebug plan to have kids in the future, but um, so this is very, you know, this could ch- my thoughts on this could definitely change once I have kids, but I'll try to answer it to the best of my abilities just now. Uh, so, yeah, of course, I want to give them everything to fulfill their potential, but nothing more. And how much is that going to be? That is the million dollar question. Uh, I think it's hard enough not to out outcast your kids socially when when they're um, going through um, school and stuff with you know maybe not giving them the latest phone or maybe not buying them the latest uh, the best brand sneakers uh, these are all experiences that I had as a kid and you know I was teased because I was maybe wearing shoes that weren't the latest Nikes and stuff uh, but I honest honestly think that it helped build my character and the person I am today and I actually had the personality type to deal with it I could just you know make a joke out of it and um turn turn it turn the situation around so I don't I didn't have any issues with that um and I can fully appreciate now you know how ridiculous how absolutely outrageous uh children's clothing and shoes for kids that they grow out of the shoes in like you know nine months or whatever um, and it's just getting worse and worse. And I, I sort of dread the day my kids go to school and all these gadgets and, um, you know, all the, the consumeristic items are appearing and they're going to feel maybe outcasted if they don't have them. So then I'm sure the, the conversation at the dinner table with me and Mrs. Firebug will be, well, you know, if we give them this, whatever is the latest craze, we're sort of get, giving in to consumerism but then if they don't have it they could be bullied you know stuff like this i'm sure every parent goes through something like this and i'm not looking forward to it but it's that's just life so the question is uh so i dealt with it like it didn't affect me too much when i when i was growing up but i wonder if my kid is going to be the same or are they going to be you know will they suffer psychologically maybe from being bullied and i could have easily prevented them from from being bullied by buying them you know the latest thing or maybe i'm just overthinking this completely and it's not going to be as big of an issue as i'm making it out to be i think raising kids uh through to adulthood while simultaneously teaching them the value of money is a struggle every parent goes through uh pretty universal and i'm sure that we'll go through it as well so that is that's pretty common you know i'm sure every parent what i just went explained and um the scenarios that i just went through i'm pretty sure everyone's going to go through that but to be more specific to your the question that you asked having a multi-million dollar portfolio to pass on to the next generation may be a little bit more specific to us firebugs and people chasing fire um so let me 
let me directly answer that question. I just wanted to set the scene a little bit before I get to this bit. So this may sound selfish to some, but please hear me out. As of right now, subject to change, we don't plan to leave our kids anything. Not one cent. What I do plan to do, though, is do my absolute best raising them. This will include free housing, unlimited food, paid for education, etc., etc. But what I don't want is for them to know that the, that their future financial security is taken care of because their parents are financially independent and they will eventually inherit the colossal snowball, which I uh, predict that it will end up being. I truly believe that if I chose to do that and have them inherit the portfolio, I would be robbing them of an opportunity to participate in what I consider to be one of the most fulfilling accomplishments anyone can do in their life, and that is to reach financial independence through hard work and dedication. We're all dealt a different hand in life, and everyone receives some sort of help along the way. Don't care who you are, it's some sort of help has to be had along the way. Some people have a lot more than others, but everyone has some sort. I definitely did. But passing on the entire fortune to your kids, in my opinion, opinion, is sort of like giving them the, uh, you know, the can you remember the Super Mario warp whistle uh, so they can skip straight to the end, like how Mario blew on it and then he went from level two straight to the end. I feel like it's sort of like doing that to them and they won't know how fun the game is if they don't get to play it. I hope my kids are financially independent before I before I kick the bucket, hopefully well before I kick the bucket. And I'm unsure at the moment where I want the snowball to go, the portfolio. It's probably going to go to a charity that I'm passionate about, but to be completely honest, I haven't thought that far ahead. Now, I suppose what you could do is if you wanted to leave them the portfolio without them, without... <clears throat> limiting their potential because this is this is the concern I have is if they know that they're going to get it 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 might stop drive and ambition or it, it, it may limit them limit them uh, to an extent so what you could do is you could hide it from them um, and pretend that maybe you're not as wealthy as you are or uh, just lie and say you don't have as much money as you do. Um, I guess it's going to be a bit hard for me with this website if they ever find out about it, which they most likely will just because of the internet. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really think that one through, but if you're being honest with them, like when they get, to, when they uh, become an adult, it's going to be pretty obvious. Uh, or hopefully I would like to think that you're having, you know, money talks with your children and, um, that they, they get an understanding of how money works and everything like that. So you could hide it from them. I guess that's a common strategy, but um, that's what we're going to do at the moment. We're going to be honest. Um, they're not going to get any of the portfolio. They're going to get every opportunity to succeed and fill their potential, and we're going to help them and always always help them and support them. But there is, there's not going to be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for them. They are going to have to build that pot of gold themselves, and that is going to be one of the the best life lessons for them and the the achievement and the the uh, how exhilarating it is for for them to work that out or, or to work through that on their own sort of on their own like as I mentioned everyone gets a bit of help but to achieve that 
it, it's something that that money cannot buy. I think there is just such there is a world of difference between having something given to you and having to earn it and work for it and and go through years and maybe decades of dedication and um, chipping away at this goal and then and then you get there and it's like wow I I built this I didn't just get it given to me. I, I may have got some, you know, help. And I mentioned before, everyone's dealt a different hand in life, but there is a sense of satisfaction that just cannot be uh, bought and they, that they will not get if it's given to them. And I feel like, um, there was that report. I, I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was something like 50% or maybe it was even higher of, uh, lottery winners, uh, wish, you know, five years later down the track, they wish they never won the lottery because they had all these issues that money brought them. And I feel like it's if they're just given the, the portfolio without working for it, there's maybe a chance that um, the the lessons learned through building the portfolio will be missed. And I feel, I'm pretty sure it's happened, you, you know, countless uh generations of family wealth you know um disappear like three four generations out from the original original ones that built it so i'm sort of waffling here but that's my opinion on it um if you are if you're set on leaving a legacy behind for your kids like you know that that's what you want to do um i don't think you can beat the estate planning of trusts there are so many ways you could do it as well maybe you don't want them to receive everything at once maybe they only ever receive dividends from the portfolio each year and they never get to, you know, sell units off. Uh, if I was in your position and I knew for sure that I wanted to leave a legacy behind for the kids, I would go see a trust expert and explain what you want to, what you want to achieve. And I'm sure that they could implement it. Thanks for your good, your great question. And I hope that answers it. Our final question for this Friday comes in from Bryce. Bryce writes in, Hi Matt, like yourself, I'm looking at moving overseas to work for a while in the next couple of years. I'm assuming that your existing property investment properties may be negatively geared to take advantage of Australian income tax law. Now that you're earning income and paying tax overseas, what impact has this had on your deductions and cash flow for, for your Australian property investments? Bryce. Hi Bryce. Nice to hear that, mate. Uh, moving and working overseas has been one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Highly recommend, would recommend it to anyone. Uh, now, to your question, our two remaining properties are positively geared before depreciation is factored in, but with the depreciation schedule, they are negatively geared. However, we bought both properties in the trust or through the trust, which was a mistake in hindsight. Um, a bit of a long story why we did that, but I won't go, go into it in this question. So we've never actually been able to reduce our income through negative gearing on those properties. What we have been able to do though is reduce the taxable income of the trust through those deductions. Even though the trust earns money in the form of dividends through the shares, it has never actually made it's never actually made a distribution because the deductions have always brought down. Um, they've always been more than the income of the trust. So the trust has actually technically never uh, made any money because of those deductions. And uh, if you don't know property deductions or depreciation schedule, just ha- just give it a Google. But it's it's not it's hard to explain because you can actually get you can be positive cash flow, which is what those properties are, but 
neg- technically negatively geared. So you're losing money on paper, which is the depreciation schedule, but there's actually dollars going into the account. It's a bit weird. Um, if you, ha- if you've never invested in property before, but that's, and I guess that's why people get so angry at it sometimes. But anyway, that's another story. So when we eventually do sell the properties, the trust and the trust will start to distribute income like normal. Um, since there won't be anything left in there that costs extra money. And on that note, the flexibility of the trust has actually been really, really handy whilst we've been working overseas. And it's meant that we're able to distribute income when it eventually does come to other people and not have it uh, being taxed at 32.5% because we're not residents of, of Australia for tax purposes anymore. Because if you're not a resident in Australia, or sorry, if you're not an Australian resident for tax purposes and you have income or you have assets generating income in Australia and you're you're another resident for tax purposes elsewhere, it's taxed at a higher rate. You don't get that uh you know eighteen and a half thousand dollar tax free tax free threshold. It's taxed at a higher rate from the get go. Um so that's a real bummer for for other people. But if you do it through a trust, you can distribute it to other people. Like if you have those available, which we do, we have both our parents. So not that we're doing this now, but this is just another example of uh, a benefit of a trust. Um, if you're working and traveling overseas a lot, the flexibility really does come in handy here. And on that note, it's also enabled us to continue to purchase shares as we're not, we, we don't own the shares in our personal name, but rather they're, they're through the trust, which is I get some questions and some comments about how do I start investing whilst overseas and as a resident of another country. I don't know the exact answer to that. And I think it's, I don't know if a lot of brokers allow you to do that. I think most of them, you need to be a resident of a tax resident of Australia, but because we set up the trust, we don't actually own the shares. We just control the trust. Well, I'm diverging from the question a little bit now, but as of right now, uh, my mum actually controls the trust because I'm not a resident of Australia for tax purposes. And if you run a company in Australia, not a business, a company, there needs to be a um, director that's an Australian resident for tax purposes. But now we're getting super technical, technical and I don't want to go into that. Anyway, uh, back to the question. The money I make through AussieFirebug.com, which is through a business, that unfortunately is going to be taxed at 32.5% from the get-go, which is not ideal. But I did actually seek advice from my accountant and I was willing to bet that I was going to have greater tax savings on my consulting checks whilst being a resident of the UK for tax purposes rather than staying an Australian one. It might be, uh, it, it definitely is complicated. So I hope I've answered the question. Um, I'm actually going to publish my Australian... Australia to UK article. When I finish it, it's it's a bit of a monster, and it's going to explain this in a lot more detail. But I hope that hope that answers it. Um, if it didn't, let me know, and I'll try to put more details in the comments. Uh, but that's that's it, guys. That's the last question for this Friday. Have a fantastic weekend, and I'll see you in the next one. Catch you later.